In part one, we looked at the history of our country's relationship with the Mississippi River, how we have used it for exploration, as well as trade and navigation. We heard what the Army Corps of Engineers has done to create easy transportation up and down the river, and its role in the construction of levees to provide safety for those in harm's way. But as we'll hear in this episode, Mother Nature can't always be tamed. There is only so much you can do to manage this great river. I'm Stephanie. Welcome to Alltown USA. Parts of the country's midsection slammed by days of catastrophic flooding face a new threat from more rain. The region is bracing for a new round of flooding as rivers in 40 locations rise to historic levels. Amy, let's talk a little bit about these levees in the area. I mean, I'm looking at the water level right now. How fearful are they that these levees are not going to be able to hold back this onslaught of water? Yeah, they're very concerned about that. Now Think about a look it. at the mounting toll taken by the ongoing flooding across the Midwestern United States. Thousands of homes are damaged and vast swaths of farmland underwater. Just north of St. Louis, you'll find West Alton County. It's a farming community on a floodplain sandwiched between the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. People here are familiar with spring flooding, but this year it hasn't stopped. January to May of 2019 was the wettest on record, causing widespread flooding throughout much of the Midwest. Approximately 14 million people were affected by this flooding, and at least 1 million acres of farmland was underwater through the late spring to the middle of summer. And while here in Alton the river level didn't quite reach that of the Great Flood of 93, it did break a record of being the longest lasting flood on the Mississippi. Many cities and towns were above flood stage for more than 130 days. And while it's unclear at this point what the exact cost of this flood is, it's estimated to be at least $3 billion. And this isn't the first major flood since 93 either. This is something that appears to be happening more and more. In fact, as I'm recording this in the fall of 2019, we are yet again in a flood warning. As you can imagine, there's a lot to discuss when it comes to the impact of flooding. And while I can't cover it all, I hope to help provide some understanding of the environmental, economic, and emotional toll these floods have. So let's start with some of the environmental impacts. We know floods have a huge impact on farmland and crops, but what about the forests, prairies, and wildlife that live next to and depend on the river? Let's start with the prairies and forests that live in the floodplain near Alton. Here again is Robert Cosgriff, a forester for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Another misconception about uh, the floodplain is that it was all forested um, during pre-settlement, and that's not quite true. Um, about 50 to 60% uh, of our floodplain is actually a prairie. So that's been kind of the more impacted uh, community type out there, the most hardly hit um, as far as uh, what development is uh, loss of prairies. So there's a particular, there's approximately 60 different tree species out there in our floodplain forest in this area. Um, some species are a little bit more tolerant to flooding, such as willow, um, even maple and, and green ash, um, they have decent uh, ability to survive flooding. Whereas other species like our oaks and our hackberries and some of the more important mass species for wildlife have a little bit poor survivorship. Um, generally smaller sized trees 
um, have poor survivorship versus larger sized trees. So there's a size relationship as well as a species relationship. The other thing too is, you know, the whole shrub component and, and things like that, like the blackberries, elderberries, and other things that we find commonly within a floodplain forest and the understory, they pretty much get wiped out as well. So it's not just the trees that are impacted, but pretty much everything. We could still go out there and I could look at a forest and tell that it was heavily impacted by the 93 flood event. I could still see signs from our last uh, large-scale flood event. It's something this flood event will have an impact for a long time. I asked Robert about the impact these floods have to the wildlife in the area. Oh yeah, it'll have a significant impact, especially when you're talking about uh, deer and things like that. If they can't find high ground to get to, um, it could definitely have a negative impact on them. Um, they're great swimmers, and I've seen a lot of them swimming around lately, but uh, hopefully they can find some high ground and, and hold out. So. Um, a lot of the high ground that you see out here has got a lot of wildlife on it right now. Charlie Deutsch, an environmental stewardship manager for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, pointed out another major impact. But the one thing I think has changed that um, is a big negative is the invasive species. A prairie like we have over at Riverlands, after a flood event in a natural ecosystem, would uh, would go through a successional process where uh, these species that have laid dormant, that have seed in the soil, would start to come up, and and they would be uh, dominant for a while, and they get, would get replaced by another species that kind of outcompetes them, and and gradually that would progress through, and and you'd have this this change of of uh, vegetation that might might happen. But today, with the invasives that we have, um, when those species get knocked back because of the flood, the invasive species come in and automatically take over so that natural successional process really doesn't get a chance to to happen. The invasive species really can outcompete a lot of the other uh, plant species that uh, we, you know we desire to be there that are that are natives and so that be- becomes a big challenge for us and that's not just in prairie communities it's wetlands it's forests it's uh, even in the wildlife communities you know we Think about the Asian carp um, that are on the Mississippi River and and uh, the ones that the boaters hate because they're jumping their boats. Um, you know they were really spread by you know flooding conditions. Charlie also pointed out that some flooding can be helpful to the environment and its ecosystems. In general, from an ecological standpoint, flooding is a good thing because it does help replenish communities and and we still see some of those benefits. You know even though uh, the channels don't really change, but there is scouring, there's deposition, um, the f- waters that spread out across the floodplain where there's restored habitat, like at Riverlands, um, you know, it certainly provides some uh, nutrient uh, influx to those areas. So um, so there's, there, there are those benefits uh, as long as we don't have continued flood year in and year out, and, and especially as unnaturally high as some of the floods might be. But as Robert points out, unfortunately, we were having more frequent continued flooding. It, it's going to reset things, but it, it's, I mean, we were already have been reset uh, multiple times by the large number of flood events we've had in recent years. So this is not a disturbance event that we were wanting. Now let's take a look at the economic impact. We know that the cleanup efforts after a major flood event is time consuming and costly, but what about the financial impact on simply preparing for a flood? I sat down with Alton Mayor Brant Walker to hear how the city prepares for floods and what new techniques they are using to try to minimize the impact that flooding has on our downtown businesses. Uh, this particular flood, we went with the um, sewer diver because a lot of times, even in 93, what happens when the river gets so high is if you maintain the front, it means you keep the river out. And when it starts pushing in, since we're an older city, we have com- a combined sewer. Everything that normally flows out 
the river starts to push back in. So you will lose the flood. You'll flood from behind the flood wall. So everything, your drains, floor drains, toilets, sinks will now start to back up. Your storm uh, sewers will back up. <clears throat> your manholes will start to back up. So you will lose from behind. So we were able to find an outfit out of Missouri. They were a um, salvage dive crew. And they came in and dove through our sanitary sewer lines with plugs and went through our laterals. God knows how he did it, but he swam through the laterals with inflatable plugs and blocked off the laterals from the main. So when the river pushed in under Piasaw Street, which is the road at the bottom, it's a highway. So one of the laterals is 47 inches. He went down with a plug, blocked them off. So when the river pushed back in, it could no longer go into the downtown area are up the hill. So we were able to contain it. And then instead of trying to, to stop the manholes, you know, through putting barriers or rock or sandbags, putting weight on, what we did was we took uh, cauldrons, basically sewer concrete lines that you see, and we custom cut them over our storms and our manholes, and we lifted those off, and we didn't hold the river back. We let it seek its own level. So the river came up. In those cauldrons, and as you went down Piasaw, some of the cauldrons were really high, and the farther you went down the street, the smaller they got. So we did not try to hold the river back. We let it come up. So a combination of the different type of barriers we used to stop the flood, um, blocking off the uh, downtown area with plugs off your laterals, and then allowing the river to come up whenever it reached as high as it wanted to inside those cauldrons, we were able to beat this flood. One area that the city improved upon for this most recent flood was their flood wall. We went to a uh, Jersey barrier that is a block style with a neoprene lining, which includes more rock and less sandbags. So it's more of like we built a structure or swimming pool, basically. This wall was really quite remarkable. Its design allowed city workers to easily add blocks to increase its height as water levels rose or to add on to its length if necessary. It took about 36 hours to build, and it stretched across much of Alton's lower downtown, successfully keeping many businesses out of harm's way. However, the construction of the wall did come at a cost, which Mayor Walker explains. The other portion that we're out right now legitimately is probably $750,000 again that was not budgeted with regards to just overtime and material cost. Rock, barriers liners. Um, the last, we've had three crests this year, the last one of course being the number two flood, but the last event alone, our guys work 24 hours a day, seven days a week for six weeks. So the overtime budget is a killer. While many of Alton's businesses were spared, several did remain closed for several months. And because this flood has lasted so long, it has had a severe impact on the city and on the business owners and employees. Here is Sarah McGibney, Executive Director of Alton Main Street. But for those businesses, as you can imagine, you know, especially this time around, this flood has been like none other. A few of the businesses have been closed for months now. So if you can only imagine how that would impact a small business, and especially their employees that don't have any other means of income, it's been pretty devastating for a lot of businesses. The downside is, yeah, the economic impact is, it, it's incredible. Um, out of our approximately $33 million budget, the casino is 3.3, 3.9. So it's almost, it's 10% of our total budget. So the casino being closed uh, for the two months during this flood event, that costs the city over $600,000 just in revenue coming in. The Argosy Casino is located on the riverfront in downtown Alton and is one of the city's top employers. So anytime that you see an event that lasts three months, two months, and people can't come and enjoy our downtown area because it is a very vibrant downtown. 
um, it will impact our budget significantly. So I would assume that you got six hundred plus thousand dollars from the casino. But I would expect our revenues overall well over a million, one point five million dollars in revenue that we had budgeted that we um, will not receive. It is significant, and then the trickle effect. I would say in the Alton area alone, that doesn't include any other community, probably 500 plus people or more were out of work. Uh, this flood will impact this community for this entire year. And as we know, tourism is a major moneymaker for Alton. And while the majority of Alton and its businesses were up and running during this particular flood, it still prevented people from visiting. Yeah, we were able to maintain a big majority of our businesses downtown. They were impeded uh, just from the fact Whenever you say flood, people think you're completely shut down so they won't come. Um, you know, we're, we're relatively lucky. Alton is terraced, you know, so really it's only the very, you know, bottom section of downtown Alton that is affected by the flood. I think that is a, a big problem because people from outside the area just hear there's a flood and they envision that literally the entire town is underwater. But honestly, in the neighborhood of, you know, six to eight businesses had to close. I asked Sarah if she's worried about losing businesses if this trend of more frequent flooding continues, or if it'll be hard to encourage new businesses to open up downtown. Well, really, you know, the flood insurance is, is a big problem that has just skyrocketed in recent years because as everyone is realizing, these types of problems are not gonna go away. They're only going to get worse, if anything. So uh, that is economically a big thing that we've got to figure out on a national level, I think, is how we are going to um, you know, support businesses and, and keep their flood insurance at a reasonable level for them to be able to operate. I mean, it would really be a shame. Some of these businesses at the foot of State Street there, that, those are some of the oldest buildings in Alton. So it would just be a real shame if we were to have to, uh, you know, lose those buildings or relocate those businesses because they're very important to the fabric of downtown. It's not just a business along the river's edge. It is also the business on the river. We already know that the Mississippi and its tributaries are used heavily in the transportation of goods. But what happens when the river is essentially shut down? I asked Charlie about the economic impact in regards to the Melvin Price Lock and Dam being closed. As you'll recall, this lock and dam is one of the newest and largest on the upper Mississippi. Because of the flooding, we've been probably shut down for, um, I'm guessing maybe a month, but uh, we do have a kind of a critical elevation once the water hits a certain height. It's just not safe for the boats to come through and and uh, there's machinery and all that kind of stuff that, uh, that operate the dam that um, make it so it's just not usable. It certainly impacts uh, the towing industry and and so the, you know, the major commodities that move through here are coal, and grain and, you know, some chemicals and um, other products. So all that is kind of at a standstill. And so some of that gets shifted over to rail or to highway, which impacts um, other things going on. But uh, we probably get 30 to 40 barges a, a day that move through here. And, and so, you know, they're all just kind of sitting and grain gets exported south and moved down to the coastal areas and gets put on tankers. It gets shipped all around the world. And so that certainly is a big impact. Um, coal and others are typically going upstream and getting moved to the power plants like at Portage of Sioux and other locations. So, you know, they have a stockpile and they can get through uh, for a period of time, but but uh, they certainly depend on, you know, that uh, commodity coming through. And there isn't obviously an economic impact to that. And you've got a lot of, uh, uh, all the way down to the 
the deckhands and people working on the boats that are uh, at home because they can't move anywhere and not getting a paycheck uh, uh, to the people that like here in this, uh, you know, in the Riverbend community, we have a, a big hub of, of activity that's uh, tied to that navigation industry. So, you know, just downstream of us, there's a couple stores that supply the tow boats with food and, and supplies. And so when those tows aren't coming up and down the river every day and, and they're not stocking them up with the groceries that they need to make meals, uh, then, you know, then they're, they're, they're not making money either. So, um, so it, it definitely has an impact. So how far in advance can cities and communities like Alton start preparing for a flood? Here again is Mayor Walker. It, you know, it depends on the rain forecast. Sometimes we have enough warning, but like the December flood, uh, 15 going into January of 16, we literally had no warning that we received, I can't remember, 15 inches of rain in 36 hours. And believe it or not, the Mississippi River acted like a creek. It flash flooded. So we had almost no warning and we barely were able to get the wall up. This flood, we were lucky because we'd had three crests, so we knew it was kind of coming, so we were prepared. Um, so, I mean, I hate to say it, but if you look at what we have right now, like I would expect we're going to get a flood this fall. And the reason I say that is we're saturated, the river is still running high, and if we get a wet fall, we're going to flood again. So then we will start watching spring in November, December, and January. What is the snowpack up north? Because immediately what rains here doesn't really hurt us. What hurts us is coming down the river. So if it's um, a cold, wet winter where there's a lot of snowpack and we have a wet spring, we will flood again. So we'll kind of start preparing for a flood in December. Now I want to introduce you to Donna Bazilian. Donna lives in Calhoun County, near Hardin, Illinois. Calhoun County is famous for the fact that it's basically a peninsula, located in between the Mississippi and Illinois rivers. It's a major tourist attraction, boasting beautiful river views and a lush countryside. In Hardin, the Joe Page Bridge crosses over the Illinois River and is the only bridge access to the county. So it should come as no surprise that this beautiful county, nestled in between two large major rivers, is often hard hit during flood events. Donna has lived in Calhoun County for almost 40 years and had a first-hand glimpse of how destructive a flood can be during the flood of 93. It was, you know, pretty devastating as far as it isolates you. When the water gets that high, there's a levee, the Nutwood Levee, that's just on the other side of the Illinois River from Hardin. And there's a major route, Route 16, going across the Joe Page Bridge that is our route out of town basically. When the levee breaches, it blocks that road. So there's no other route out of town other than unless you're boating. Well, they had a temporary ferry in the south end of the county in, in Brussels, and it was open, so people were using that. I took it to work one day. The river came back up and knocked the ferry back out, so I was stranded in Altenham. So I had to meet my mother-in-law in Jerseyville and follow her around to get home. And I just stayed home, and it took probably four months before we could use that Route 16 again. So we were isolated that long. Donna works in Alton, and she told me that normally it takes her an hour to get to work. But when the river floods, it takes her a little over three hours. That's a six-hour round-trip commute. She described to me what life, work, and commuting in and out of the county is like during a flood for her and the more than 5,000 people who call Calhoun County home. They've had to build the roads up with gravel. So there's like three feet of gravel on the this narrow country road to be able to get through to get to the route 
to go up through the hills. So, so it just takes a lot of, a lot of work and coordination. Luckily, we have a good um, county engineer, road engineer, that has done an excellent job of keeping the roads open, making it easier for people to get through. There are a lot of people that are obviously much worse off than we are. We're very fortunate it doesn't affect our home. We're just inconvenienced. But, but those people, um, there was a lot of sandbagging effort going on trying to sandbag homes. There's a, a couple homes in Hardin right now that have sandbag levees totally around them and a couple restaurants. There's a Illinois River Dock restaurant and um, there's a little Hardin drive-in, little small little drive-in restaurant. And they've got sandbag levees around them, manning them, manning pumps 24 hours a day. The walls around them are probably five feet tall at least and and um, took a lot of manpower and a lot of work to do that. So we were sandbagging a lot, trying to keep the levee, trying to build it up to where hopefully it wouldn't overtop, but that's kind of disappointing. It's great to see the community all come together, though, and work so hard to for a common purpose. You know, trying to trying to keep your your road open and help everybody else. And like when you were sandbagging down there, people were bringing food, and everybody was coming together helping. So it's it's really there's some good experiences to it too. Being a small rural community, everybody does. I mean, it is everywhere. Here in Alton, too, you see the people down on the river down there putting up the big concrete blockades and the sandbag levees and stuff, trying to save the businesses here in downtown Alton. So there's a lot of people working together. So so unfortunately, you know, when there's a disaster or hardship, it takes that to bring people together. But um, it's good to see that people do come together and work so hard. So, But uh, our communities in, in Calhoun County is a, is a very strong one. And right now there are a lot of people stranded that don't have access to um, just the goods that you need every day. So they have food pantries and things because the narrow winding roads that you have to travel on to get supplies in, they have to have like a escort, sheriff's department has to escort them in. And so there's, it's not coming in and out as freely. So there are people that are doing without some. Donna's father lives in Alton. So she is able to stay with him during the week, which drastically cuts down on her commute time. But as she mentions, many others aren't that fortunate. The financial impact that if somebody stays home, they obviously don't get paid. Um, there are some people that are staying in motel. They go around and stay in a motel all week and go home on the weekend because they don't have somebody else to stay with. So it's costing them money to stay in a motel all week. So that's an extra how many hundreds of dollars every month that it's costing them to be that because it costs even more to drive back and forth. You can't you can't drive six hours to work eight every day. I mean, it's not feasible. I'm fortunate to have someone to stay with here, but there are people um, boating every day. The people in the south end of the county, the river's been up for quite a while, up and down. And probably since at least April, the road, the river comes up so the when it does, it knocks out the ferries in the south end of the county. So when those are knocked out, the people from the county that work in Missouri, like St. Louis or whatever, they can't get to work that way. So there's been people boating back and forth across the river for a couple months now already before this, you know, this severe flood. Um, it came up, came up and started to go back down one time, like about a month ago. And we thought we were 
kind of out of the woods. The river road opened back up to where we could get go that way, but then it came back up and it didn't stop this time. So the the water is from bluff to bluff. I mean, it's like when you go across the Joe Page Bridge, you just like looking out over an ocean. I mean, it's just you can't imagine the amount of water, and it's just acres and acres of farmland underwater, and it's just it's just hard to imagine, you know, until you see it. It's just really, I don't know, devastating, I guess is the word. I asked Donna about the emotional toll these floods have on her and her community. For her, understandably, it comes down to the idea of home and what it means to be separated from it. I'd say that was probably the hardest thing for me. It just made me sad to not be able to go home. My children are grown. Um, so I don't have small kids at home, but there are people that I know that have small kids that couldn't go home during the week, and that's terrible to, to be separated from your family for a week at a time, but you can't afford to lose your job. You have to work, so yeah, I it, it, it was sad not to be able to go home because I was planning to go home the middle of the week when the, the levee breached, I couldn't, and it's just like you're lost or you're trapped, and it's not because I can't make it here, but there's nothing like being able to go home and when you know that you can't, it's, it's, it makes you sad. So there's an obvious question that follows and you're probably asking yourself that question right now. Why continue to work and or live in these flood prone areas? I asked Donna and several others this question and what I learned is that the answer is not so black and white. For most, it comes down to the importance of feeling a connection to place. To home. A lot of people say, well, we've always lived here. This is our home. Um, you know, I've said that before, too, in a way. Just if you're in that area and your house is flooded repeatedly, why wouldn't you move? I, you know, myself, maybe I would. I, I'd be tired of rebuilding. But they say, well, but my grandfather built this house, or we've always lived here. We deal with the river. It's just what we do. And here again is Charlie. I think uh, over my years working on the river and uh, being here, I've talk to all kinds of people that live in the floodplain and, and that have, you know, farms and that sort of thing. And, and there is a connection, you know, to home. And for a lot of folks, it is something that their great-grandfather or great-grandparents settled and, and then it was passed on. There is that connection, uh, you know, through family history and, and those sorts of things. So, you know, it's it'd be the same for me. It'd be hard to be forced out of an area whenever you're, you know, so connected to something. So... I also met with Ben and Trudy Allen, owners of the Loading Dock Restaurant in Grafton, Illinois. Grafton is located just north of Alton at the confluence of the Illinois and Mississippi rivers. The Loading Dock is located right on the river as you enter the town from the south and has been a staple in Grafton for many years. Ben told me that he purchased the warehouse that has now become the Loading Dock right before the 93 flood. I asked him why seeing the devastation that the 93 flood caused didn't scare him off from opening a business there. The warehouse itself was built by people smarter than me. That The warehouse was stone, brick, and steel, and concrete. And the water just throughs, goes through it and over it, but doesn't really damage it. So uh, what we learned from that prior experience when we started putting the restaurant together 
we put in all the utilities from the top down instead of from the bottom up, and we used everything in the restaurant, like the bar itself is barge steel that's been painted like an automobile, and and concrete floors, and uh, we had wooden decks, but we've now gotten rid of all the wooden decks. After 27 years, we got rid of the wooden decks that survived innumerable floods, and uh, now then we're literally set up so that what when the water comes through, which we expect, so what we do is we don't even ensure contents. We just take them out because we know that they're going to be impacted. So rather than make claims and that sort of thing against that. And so what we did is that the trucks just back up to the, to the height of the floor and it's exactly the height of a truck. We just roll everything onto trucks more out of there. So then what happens, and, and then all our doors are garage doors, glass garage doors that go up into the ceiling, and they we just open them up, and the river comes through. And then when FEMA comes through to inspect, they're always amazed. Well, there's no damage here. But it's, again, an interruption of, of uh, business. And I know I was asked one time, well, why would you... You know, this flood, regardless, even if you don't suffer serious damage, it's a lot of work and a lot of cleanup, and it is. And I always say, well, over the years, the risk is known, but the reward has been greater. And as long as that reward is greater, then the business is a good idea. However, Ben did admit that while he and others have figured out ways to cope with flooding, it's the long-lasting floods, such as the one we witnessed in 2019, that are more concerning. I think 17 was about the only year I can remember that we didn't have a flood. <laughs> I even even 17 we had a little little one. I I don't know that uh, we just have to play it year by year. And uh, if the water duration stays up, that that's what impacts us. So if this is our new norm, more frequent and possibly long-term flooding, what's the game plan? Is there anything that can be done to help relieve the environmental, economic, and emotional toll these flood events have? Here again is Charlie Deutsch and Robert Cosgriff. There's folks that have looked at rainfall events and the flooding events, and, and if you look at the top 10 floods on the National Weather Service's webpage, uh, you know, I think we've had five or six of the top 10 in the last 20 years. Well, I'd like to say that we could be better prepared, but flood events of this nature, you know, you. The 93 flood was considered a 1 in 500 year flood. And then they changed it to a 1 in 100 year flood. So you expect this thing to only occur you know, once out of every 100 years. But we're seeing such a, a frequent occurrence of these large scale flood events that it's hard for us to plan, especially when we're talking about going in, because a lot of my focus is on reforesting, going through and finding areas that are suitable elevation, suitable soil types for us to go through and reforest more desirable trees that might not be as flood tolerant um, and we think that we got 100 years to play with and get them up nice and tall and be able to survive those flood events. Well, recently we haven't had that. So um, a lot of what uh, I've been planning over the previous 10 years was that we won't see a 93 flood event for a long time. Unfortunately, here we are, and I, I'm, you know, it, it makes you kind of worried as to what we're looking at, and then it also makes you wonder, well, how are we going to change our management strategy because now you know, obviously it's not a 100-year flood event. It's, it's much more frequent. I asked Mayor Walker if the city plans on using the same methods they used this summer to help alleviate the impact of the next flood. Absolutely. Like uh, we had a lady from IEMA, and she says, you need to be planning your next flood six months out. And our public works director goes, I'm planning the next flood right now. 
So we've been planning the floods. Unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, uh, we're getting good at this. We're averaging floods now every eight to ten months. So we've had ten floods in six years, and five have been top tens. So there's something definitely different uh, with regards to floods and the frequency of those. So I grew up on the river. I'm from St. Louis and grew up on the river in downtown. So I've been on this river my entire life, and this river is definitely acting different than it used to. Like I mentioned in the beginning of part one, there are so many issues and stories about this river and its relationship to Alton that aren't mentioned here. Hopefully you will be inspired to track down some of these stories yourself and share them with others. Because this river, when it's at its best and when it's at its worst, truly impacts all of us. Well, Alton was built around the river intentionally, obviously, especially back in the day, you know, a lot of commerce and everything happened right here on the river. It wasn't necessarily because of the spectacular views like we appreciate today. It was more because the waterway was a means of doing business and from for getting materials from point A to point B. Um, so really, it's it's been a little bit of a pivot for Alton to not just look at the river in the way of you know what it can do for us you know with industry and more what it can do for quality of life and uh, just you know, enjoying the fact that we are right here on one of the world's most wonderful waterways. It all goes back to the river and our location along it I and mean, we are at a kind of a neat place too the river bend and I think too what's great about it is Alton has had to reinvent itself to move away from such a reliance on industrialization to cultural tourism and cultural and heritage tourism. And yeah, I think it's succeeding really well. It's had to re-identify itself as a small town, but yet with this great story to tell. So the river is always a, a part of this area and from generations and civilizations that have lived here in the past and even to today. You know, it's very much a part of the culture of who we are. Uh, there are many people who have always lived in the river, on the river. Um, you know, they're not going to move away from it. Uh, they're connected to it. The Mississippi is really a muse that, that connects all of us together. Uh, it's part of, of who, who we all are. This episode of All Town USA was written, edited, and produced by me, Stephanie Young. Theme music by Will and Janet Buchanan, with additional music by Miles Moore and Darren Pierce. Special thanks to Ben Allen, Donna Bazilian, Robert Cosgriff, Charlie Deutsch, Sarah McGibney, Brett Stawar, Mayor Brant Walker, and Brad Wynn.